You're listening to Making a Living Show. I'm Roby Levy. Hi, I'm Daryl Din, and I do the art of comedy, dramatic stuff, and anything else for a dollar for a living. Daryl Din is an award-winning actor and comedian based in Toronto. A graduate of Second City, Daryl's credits include turns on Schitt's Creek, Rick Mercer Report, and Out with Dad. And he's shared the screen with heavyweights like Jake Gyllenhaal, Kids in the Hall's Scott Thompson, and Sesame Street's Oscar the Grouch. Here's my chat with Daryl Din. Who are you and what do you make for a living? I'm Daryl Din. I'm an actor and entrepreneur. So how'd you get started with the acting? Basically, I my background, I went to school for television production. And uh, that was in Ottawa. And then had a realization that there is really no major production work in Ottawa. Because being so close to Montreal and Toronto, they just pay for everyone to come for the few days and do it. Because um, as you know, with production, it's who you trust and who do you want to be stuck with 15 hours a day. So it's a lot easier to pay those couple hotel <laughs> hotel rooms and per diems to get you there. So uh, I w- worked on the Country Music Awards and realized everyone was from Toronto, like while I'm in Ottawa. And within that month, I moved to Toronto. Those, those group of people uh, came to Toronto, worked on the Anne Murray special and two more shows. And during that time, like, you know, I've always been a performer, did acting and stuff, and it was in the back of my head. And I had this epiphany. I'm like, well, Steven Spielberg's not going to come and knock on my door and say, hey, you, (laughs) come be in my movie. So I went and started taking some uh, improv classes at Second City. And that's sort of, I was doing that for a few years, doing some writing, and then got an agent and started doing uh, well with a lot of commercials. Because I think a lot of people don't realize that most people you see in commercials, uh, especially in Canada, I'd say 80% are comedians in that world because as much as, you know, drama and film and television is more about tightly scripted things in commercials, they want more playfulness and that you can go with the flow on the day when you're filming. So that sort of started that career. And then slowly finally started getting more TV and film parts. Uh, once I stopped caring, <laughs> <laughs> way more successful. I always say less worry. Stop caring, kind of a too cynical, but I worried less. So you started in Ottawa, you were at school, mm-hmm. you had the epiphany, you realized, obviously Toronto is a better place to be for production and for acting. You came here and that's when you got into Second City? I started taking classes at Second City. So did their uh, levels A through E, I think I skipped E, and then there's the Second City Conservatory, which you have to audition for. And from that, you uh, start learning to improvise and start writing from your improv because that is how Second City makes their shows. So got to do that, worked with a lot of great people. And around that time, too, I started doing uh, musical improv. So that's where I got to work uh, with uh, Jen Corwana and Rita Exley and just a lot of good people in that world. So because it's just, you know, the base rule of improv is yes, the ending. And people are like, when I do this, yes. Yeah. And you're just being creative. It Keep riffing. Yeah, it was a very, very nice time. And oh, how to go back to it. The the energy of the younger self. (laughs) Let me ask you, why did you come to Toronto as an actor? Were you always a comedic actor? Like, is that what what made you gravitate towards going to Second City as opposed to maybe one of the uh, more serious acting programs, theatrical acting programs that are in in town? Part of it's just being from Newfoundland. Like, I think anyone could be, is funny in Newfoundland. And (laughs) a few of us are like, hey, I might be able to make some money at this, (laughs) are the ones that, they moved to Toronto. Um, But yeah, so the default's always comedy and, but the more I got to work, I actually got to do some dramatic stuff as well. Um, but that was also from friends who were creating things and stuff. Because again, 
the professional world was still just seeing me as the comedian, but uh, being able to do dramatic monologues and to be crying and stuff at least sort of showed that other side. And that helped definitely get more dramatic work. How did you develop that? Like, how did you develop that kind of skill and that, or did you always have the skill and then you were somewhat typecast? Yeah, I think it's sort of the typecast is like the bigger jolly guy, I think sort of, because I always say commercial auditions is basically stereotypes and can you take a direction? <laughs> really be succinct. Get your mark and, <laughs> yeah. and look right. Yeah. Be able to look the part. So, and I think for the dramatic side, it's really just learning to be more vulnerable. And as you get older, I think it's a lot easier to pull away the shields and stuff and just sort of be more present and sort of expose yourself which sounds totally incorrect. Um, <laughs> reveal your emotional self. <laughs> there it is. Tell me about some early commercial roles then. Like what, what were some of the things you were getting? Um, actually my first commercial, I'm, and this is again, sort of the, I've definitely approached the industry backwards because I got my first union commercial without an agent. <laughs> All because, uh, cause I was working production at Rogers and uh, my coworker, Frankie said, Oh, they're auditioning for this. It was a follow-up to the I Am Canadian Molson commercial. And it was like the song stuff. And I happened to audition for it because they were looking for Newfoundland actors and a Newfoundland accent. So I'm like, okay, I can do that. And I auditioned for it, submitted, and got a role as a railway worker. And because of that was a union production, I could join actor, the actors. Union, right. And that's what I did. Do you want to give us a little, should we do a little uh, inside the actor studio? I make you do the, the Newfie accent. Well, I don't like being put on the spot. It's a bit, it's, it's, it's a bit too much pressure, but maybe if you give me a week or so, I'd be able to get around to it for you. Nice. Still got it. Still got it. Like you never left the island. <laughs> Let's go down I'm to from the Labrador. <laughs> Mainland Newfoundland. <laughs> but my parents, people, yeah, a lot of people have trouble understanding my dad. His, his accent's quite thick. So you were in this Rogers ad, shall we say, drawing on your roots. Mm-hmm. Um, and what did that, the Molson ad? Oh, I'm sorry. It was the Molson ad. Excuse me. Yeah. What did that lead to? Was that sort of a one-off for a while and then you waited and then there was, there was something down the road or did that kind of springboard you to a few different things? It's springboard because I then shortly thereafter, I got a part on, uh, a producer I knew they were looking for some uh, comedians for, uh, for CBC special they were doing. So they hired me and like a few people from my group and we got to do that. So I actually got, I became a full actor member without an agent which is very rare because back in the time you had to do six individual credits. Now it's only three uh, to join the union. But uh, yeah, it's just sort of that doing that. And I think as I got older, I realized, especially in Canada, like you need a steady, flexible job to cover your bills because when I was working and most of the work was, I was working at Rogers at the time uh, gave me that flexibility. So when you're going auditioning, not worrying about money, this is my rent. I got to pay these bills. You're just freer because like, I left. I left uh, to pursue my acting full time. Got nothing. Went back to Rogers. Booked a lot of stuff. Like it's just funny because there's that people can smell desperation. Yeah, it's like, the confidence. Yeah, you are sending a vibration. Like I need this for my rent. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that was a great lesson. But also, I think in Canada, like there's not a lot of work because even though the day rate's great, like probably roughly like you're getting 800 to a thousand dollars for the day which sounds impressive but if you're only booking four or five days work a year that's not it's nice bonus money but that's not a living so what do people do then what did you do for a living along the way you said you were doing some work at rogers yeah i was doing production work at rogers for the most part and then 
uh, started doing some like web design work for people and editing demo reels for other actors and stuff. So uh, it's always fun, but it's also, you know, helps pay the bills. But I think sometimes that's its own energy of managing that beast. And you're managing a beast that you might not be that concerned about. Because <laughs> like, <laughs> I'd rather be focusing on, you know, your craft of like, you know, acting, writing and those things versus trying to finish a web page and and also realizing I think as uh, a creative person and you know trying to make a living uh, the cheaper your prices are the cheaper your customer is the most trouble I've had are the people who are always charging the least too so that definitely made me start charging more and just because I think then people value what the work you're doing more because if it's too low they just think it's I don't know it's it's a weird switch in people's brains so at least if they know they're paying a premium price, you're giving them premium service and somehow everyone seems to respect each other a lot more. Do you find that's the case as well in the acting world and film and television land? Yeah, well, on one level, because again, being in the union, there's base, uh, base fees and stuff. And again, if they can get away with the base fee, they will. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was lucky for a long time, I, I was doing a series of commercials where I was getting triple scale, which was... Not unheard of, but not not that common. Especially, it's more uncommon now. How were you getting that versus getting scale? What had changed? Um, I think they started off doing maybe like scale and a half or double. Like it was, it's sort of that. I think just to entice better people to audition, like people who might not normally do a commercial, like because that's really where you're making your money in Canada. Is you're probably doing a few commercials a year because because uh, commercials pay you every three months as long as they're on television or airing, you know, new media or radio. Yeah. Yeah. So those things. So that's sort of like, that was sort of the bread and butter. And for a few years I was doing a series and really enjoyed it. And then did a couple audition for them. And then they were starting to give me the spots, which is great as an actor to say, Hey, you know, we want you to do this. Like it's great for the ego. They trust you. They know you. And then one time, and, and also when I switched agents, so you never, you start, when anything changes, you start over theorizing like what happened, but I was switching agents and I hadn't met the commercial agent yet. And she's like, I got a great commercial for you. It's like, it's this commercial, the one I was already in and it's paying double scale. I'm like, well, I'm getting triple scale. Uh, but they started <laughs> making me audition again. So that was annoying. Who did the agents or the, or, or the, the production, it's production company. It's all production. Yeah. And, I was just a bit annoyed because I'm like, no one else in this production is making a third less suddenly. So, but they, I think it's very easy to try to justify or blame like the actors, even though there's agencies and producers and like, there's so much money involved. So I always find it weird when they're trying to cut the person probably making the least right. in that world. Like other than probably a production assistant on the commercial, like, you know, the camera people, body people, everyone's getting a, a decent day's wage. So it's, it is sort of, even though you're the front and center of the product, they they don't seem to care. <laughs> well, so when you're in a situation like that, and whether you've been on a on, on a on a series for a while, a series of of, of commercials, um, or if you're coming into something where you're let's say undervalued, mm -hmm. where do you look for inspiration in those circumstances? How do you get through it? What what what's the process of actually being able to deliver and bring the goods? Yeah, because I think. My big thing is a mix of just avoiding it. Like, I think there's definitely times when I started out earlier, you'd sort of smile and sort of eat your shit sandwich and go along with it. But 
as we've gotten older, you're just like, no, because I don't like how I feel afterwards. And um, you just become resentful. <laughs> Have you ditched projects entirely just because they, they weren't paying right? They weren't seemingly respectful. They, they, or they, they were going in a different directions. I'd say it was a lot easier when you had other money and work. I think when you don't have those options, that's when you tend to grovel and accept things you probably normally wouldn't if you had extra money in the back, <laughs> extra money in the bank. Um, and that's why, you know, as much as I love doing the commercial and stuff, it was nice to start just doing more TV and film. And so what was your foray then into film and television? How did it kind of shift? I think just being around so long, I think people start realizing because especially with the bigger agencies, they have their TV and film agents and they have commercial agents. So they are basically siloed. So I think the good thing is being with a smaller agent, they would be able to send you up for both or believe that you could do the roles. And I think just being around so long, they knew, knew who you were, get you in the door. Because again, they're getting hundreds of people submitted per part. And they're probably only bringing in five to 10 people to audition. So just even being able to get an audition, I think a lot of actors need to realize like that alone is something to be proud of. Now, again, you're still thinking about the part, but it's just getting in the doors is half battle. What can you do to better your chances then to get in the door? I mean, you said you've been around, you persevered. Is that really the trick of it? Making sure that you're seen by enough people? For the bigger things, because um, I was lucky enough to get a part in Enemy, which was directed by Denis, Denis Villeneuve starring Jake Gyllenhaal. And that one, I would, I spent, I spent around hundred dollars uh, to hire an acting coach to help me prep for that. Because I think for big things like that, it is worth the investment to, to do it. And luckily, like if you have the money, I think you can. And because I've taken many classes, but and it's great to watch other people perform. But there's also a point where I just want an hour to focus on me, and that's to have like someone you respect and trust guide you and sort of just question you and challenge you because I was auditioning for a cashier, which sounds so simple, but they are the hardest auditions because being normal, playing normal, like fine, but like you'd rather be playing the Joker because that you can just, you know, sink your teeth into and just go, go for it. But playing average person trying to look natural in this film, that can be the challenge. And it was great because my acting coach just helped me break it down because there's video clerks. So it's like, you're looking at the computer, type the name, like just, it slows yourself down. Cause I think as actors, you're nervous usually when you're in an audition and you go too quick and to be able to sit in it and go, you're looking for that. Oh, but there's three titles, but there's only two in the show. Like just those little thoughts in between of your inner monologue, like that really helped slow me and grounded me in that audition. And what's well, worth a hundred dollars now. Right. You landed it. Yeah. And it's, get to brag <laughs> that I've worked with these like Oscar nominated people. So it's great. And it was funny too, cause it was only in that movie. I think there was only like 10 or 11 actors. So to be one of the names on the credits, you're like, great. This looks really impressive. Um, but definitely I think there's a point where, yeah, general acting classes are great, but I think the more you do it, you, it's better just to spend your time on, on coaching. And in general, you find acting classes, coaching and things like that. These are helpful things and, and, and they're helpful, not just in the early parts of your career. There's something that you actually employ on a regular basis. Is that right? There's still a business that feeds off of the aspirational actor, be it for photos and coaching and stuff. So there's a lot of money to be made. And I think sometimes not fully 
ethically or honestly. Like there's probably people that you know will never get work, but your people will take your money and coach them anyway because they got the money and the enthusiasm. But um, that's what bothers me sometimes. But, but again, like everyone in this chain is trying to make a living. So, and it's also realizing that casting director had to audition for that job. The director had to audition to the studio to get the job. So it's helped me over the years to realize like everyone has hustled to be here. It's not you against this monolith of the film or production. It can feel like that. I imagine, especially if you're not landing stuff for a while. Yeah. I imagine you can feel like you're, you're on the outside looking in. Yeah. And I think I've been very fortunate that out of the gate, I was pretty consistently getting work. And I think being more of a character actor, I was getting, you know, maybe one out of 10 auditions, which is a good ratio. But if you're like regular handsome looking Joe, that ratio might be like one in 50 or one in a hundred. And if those were my odds to begin with, I'm pretty sure I would have quit very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so you think having an interesting look and having a different, a, a standout look and a standout sound, a standout type of character you're putting across that, that makes a big difference for you. Yes, because those parts aren't as often, but there's fewer people for those parts. So it's sort of a numbers game. So even though the person next to you might be going up five times more, their odds are so much lower to book that. So, uh, and that was really helpful. And yeah, so probably I would say maybe three years ago, like things seemed to have slowed down. Um, I'd switched to a new agent and was really excited. I really liked them, but it's also, I think I wasn't ready. If that makes some sense. Cause sometimes you realize it's almost better to say I'm taking a year off, but I think you're always afraid to miss the next big thing. Like there's that fear as a performer. It's like, if you get out of the rat race, are you going to miss something or never get back in? I think that's the other fear. So right. um, when I wasn't getting as much work, I decided to go back to school. Uh, I did the uh, advanced script to screen, a, a graduate uh, certificate at Centennial. And it's an eight month course. And because I figured get a student loan, there's the grants that would at least, you know, give some financial stability <laughs> for those few months. And just to be creative and be forced to a deadline and in eight months i walked out with three short films that i wrote and directed and started had you written or directed before that time it's weird at first i would say no and then i it's only when i looked back on certain things i did i'm like oh i did direct these things like but i was just i just never called myself a director <laughs> even though i wrote these shorts i was in i directed them edited them i never until probably a year or so ago when i was putting my directing resume together i'm like oh i've done other things than just school like why do you think you didn't take credit for those things i think just having a background in production like it was just doing a bit of everything so it was it was never about like i need the director title or i need this it was just sort of i uh, just get it done <laughs> and luckily i had most of the skills that i could get it done yeah i relate to that i mean in a lot of our our projects that you and i've worked together on on a number of things you just wind up wearing a lot of hats because you don't have a lot of money and you need to get the thing done and so yeah. You know, you know how to cut it or, you know, you know how to shoot it or, you know, you know how to light it or sound or anything. And you just wind up doing those things. And if you actually took credit for all the things that you did, well, the credits would just have your name scrolling for like 10 minutes at the end of the, you know, a two minute piece. Yeah. Your name would be constant, <laughs> but the title would be changed every time. But I think this is also where I think Canadians have done so well in America because you have done all these different parts. And because in America, I think it's really, I want to be an actor and they don't think of, 
anyone else involved in that production where we have done so many of the jobs behind the camera. And I think there's just a respect in knowing it. it's just not about you. Like it's, and I see that between more theater actors versus a film and television person. Because theater is, once the curtain's up, you're driving that boat. There's no one there stopping you unless it's like a falling light. <laughs> but in production, like you're, you know, you're cog in the machine. And uh, my friend Stephanie, uh, who I got to meet on a feature film, her background, like she toured lots of theater in Canada and this was her first feature film. And now there are like acting on camera classes that many theater people take. But the one thing they failed to mention, like she said, no one tells you there's a hundred people behind the camera moving. Because that's it. As long as they're moving quietly, we in production, know it doesn't matter as long as you're not distracting from the acting. But it was just, you know, as an actor, seeing things in your peripheral vision, like realize like you need to, to focus on the person. And also for her, which was a great lesson that I tell anyone, uh, she had a crying scene, but the first shot was a wide shot. And as we know, you save that shot for the close-up. But no one told her that. So she's getting 100% in a wide shot. And like, you know, I think the director had to tell you, like, oh, no, save that for, for the close-up. But that's it. In theater, you are 100% all the time. But TV and film, it's like your energy is different depending on the shot or the location. So it's, it made you appreciate or things you take for granted just inherently being in production all my life that I knew these rules without ever being clearly told. So you, you got through your program. You came up with three shorts. What are you doing with those shorts at this point? So of the three, one got nominated for Canadian Comedy Award for best uh, Canadian Congratulations. Short. Thank you. Cool. I was I'm very, very happy. Just in my like hustle to get the word out <laughs> to get nominated and to actually make uh, the final cut. Uh, and then the other one, uh, the Donnie Awards, the Centennials uh, School Film Awards. And my more of a, a dramatic short I had about uh, life in a gay youth shelter that uh, got nominated as well. What was the drive to do something that was dramatic and something that had uh, an LGBTQ type message behind it? I think just it makes, again, like as a gay person, just realizing it's, it's stories you want to see reflected or that haven't been done. And most of my adult life, like as much as I've been doing acting stuff, I teach improv as well, and mostly to younger people and have taught at a, at a queer youth camp in Newfoundland, like every summer for five years. So sort of like that experience with all those stories and lives, I realized there's something about, because I think for it, human nature, if you don't see it, somehow you don't think about it or care about it. And it's sort of seeing those stories that I've learned and just been empowered by to put sort of that on the screen. Because I think when people see other people's stories on the screen, there's a lot, uh, a lot, it's an easier way to have empathy for someone you may not know. Are you taking these films to festivals as well? Or will you be getting them... Uh on TV, on uh, streaming service? For most of them, probably not. Like, I, well, I'm still waiting and due to the world as it, I've been wanting to do final lockdown on the shorts and that's, <laughs> that's put me in stasis this year. <laughs> so um, <laughs> since I can't get into the school to do those things, but, but I'm happy to have them and just at least points to show to people for things that I've been applying for writing grants and different uh, acting things that it's nice to be able to show something that you've done. What does the writing do for you that performing doesn't? Or do you consider them to be different things or are they, are they one and the same? Well, to be honest, I, I had writer's block for a long time. I've just, the fear of sitting down, um, I bought Final Draft, which is a screenwriting software. And 
didn't really use it. And then I read an Onion article a few months after that going, uh, aspiring screenwriter buys screenwriting software, period. <laughs> that was the story. I was like, oh. It's like when you can relate too well to an Onion article, <laughs> when you're seeing your life reflected in an Onion article. But again, I was, because I did a lot of like sketch writing and stuff with groups over like the last 15 years. But to, there's something, I was having a mental block about doing the proper formatting and I think just a weird perfectionism and then not wanting to do it at all, which I think is something so many people struggle with. It's like, you know, if it's not perfect, I'm not doing it. And I was definitely, so that was the nice thing of where we had to write and uh, direct these shorts. I just had to do it. And I just started doing it. Cause, and it was great because our first uh, writing assignment in our directing class, we were just given the theme of waking up. That was it. And while sitting in class, I just had this idea of uh, a duvet comes alive and tries to keep the man in bed. <laughs> and, that's, and that's what I love. Like, it's a stupid thought that happened in that moment was because the other one, like the, uh, the shelter me, which is one of the youth shelter. And the other two ideas were always a nugget of I, an idea I've had for years, but it was nice to have something just happen in that moment and go with it as well. So, and it's all, it's, it's a choreographed dance to uh, Swan Lake. There's no dialogue. It's just this struggle of man versus duvet. <laughs> a tale as old as time. <laughs> so ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, what are you hoping to achieve with performance, with writing, directing, creating film and TV and video? Well, and it's funny because I really thought going back to school, I was part of me was probably thinking winding down the acting or not focusing on it as much and focusing more on production work and. Uh, like last summer, I got I was a driver, production assistant, uh, which I always say, like, because again, it's who you trust. Like, so it's a new group of people. So you sort of have to do the, the base jobs to show your chops. And um, it was great. And from that, randomly, I got to become friends with Cheryl Ladd of Charlie's Angels fame. Wow. Because I got to drive her and we just totally hit it off. Like, it was great. And at the end of the movie, she took me to dinner and a movie. We went and saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like, it was you're dating Cheryl Lamb, is what you're telling. Yes, me. that's I'm. You got the exclusive. Her, her husband <laughs> will be shocked to learn, but I'm her Canadian lover. Um, <laughs> you heard it yeah. here first. So that was great. Like it was just one of those things. I love the magic about production because it's always different people you're meeting. So you know, where else would you get to be Char Cheryl Lamb of Charlie's Angels fame? <laughs> like it's just that's it. But then uh, the next job I did the fall was a production that. Uh, sucked my soul and made me realize maybe I don't want to go back into production or if I do, I want to work on a unionized production because <laughs> I was getting paid very little to drive a Hamilton two to three times a day. And that, that sucked my life force. And so now I'm in this, like, that's a tough drive. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's sort of like, what do I want to do next? But we're, we're, we all now have a lot of time to ponder. What do I want to do next? <laughs> Well, I'm kind of wondering who's all around you. I mean, I think a lot of people think of actors as, you know, lone wolves who are just kind of running out there on their own. What makes up the, the, the sort of the ecosystem around you at the highest level or the lowest level? Who, who's, who's in it with you? I think I, I would sort of, well, asterisk, I think if you're coming from a comedy background that's not stand-up, you're definitely more ensemble working with others. And that's a very nice feeling. I think stand-ups are definitely more lone wolves. And then for actors, it's, it's weird because I always say to become a lawyer, you follow certain steps, but to be an actor, you could be in the finest program in the world for like five years, or you could go, 
oh, I'm going to check this out and see what it's like. And you might have the same results. And that's sort of uh, the crazy thing. David Spade has a great joke. He goes, no other industry where, like, no one, I'm not going to say tomorrow, you know what, I'm going to become a basketball player and win an NBA championship. But someone tomorrow might decide to act and win an Oscar next year. <laughs> and that's and that's the the beauty and the madness of of the business of acting it's it's, it's you're full of optimism but then it's also fighting uh, the battles of your own like inner voice especially if you're not booking or you're, or you're having like a lull and what about management and agents i'd say in canada it's basically your agent is your pseudo manager you're really only paying one person uh, in america you're more likely to have a manager and an agent and possibly a lawyer depending on how much work you're doing. So, and they're all getting you a piece of your pie. Agent in Canada, basically, if you do a print campaign, I think they get 15%. If you're doing TV and film, they get 10%. And if you're doing theater, they might get 5%. Because again, each one, the 20% one probably pays the most, but also not that frequent. And if they're doing a stage, because it's weird too, because if you have an actor who suddenly has gone to Stratford or to some Northern like theater for the summer, they're gone for all that time. So you can't even audition them for other things. At least if you have someone in Toronto, say you're in a Mervish production or a second city show, you can still audition for, for the TV and film work in Toronto proper and get that day off if you needed it. And are they mostly out there with feelers out trying to find out what exactly is coming to town, what needs people and they look through their roster and try to try to try to pair up their roster people with the, some of these roles. Definitely, because especially if it's a casting director you might not have been to or haven't been to in a while, they might like push harder and give more of a nudge like, oh, Daryl's back and, you know, he has a beard now. Like just those little things of you're because I'm usually clean shaven and then there's a while I was having more scruff on my face and it, it changes how people perceive you. They're they're advocating on your behalf. They've they're they're kind of keeping you in the loop in the discussion, even if you are out of town at let's say a, a regional show or on set somewhere else, or even for that matter, taking a break like you're talking about. Yeah, and I think that's the thing. It's realizing because even at, as productions start to ramp up again, it's I think it's going to be the challenge of just smaller sets, smaller people, and even if you happen to be doing background, um, they're probably going to reuse people more because. Uh, productions can be very funny with background people is like they might have a hundred people and use them sparingly. But now I think it might be a third of that. And you're going to be constantly seeing people just in a lab coat, in a sweater, like just, it might be the same person because they'll have to reduce their footprint and uh, of people on set. So it's, it's going to be a very interesting time. Cause I mean, it's, it's hard enough to try to get work in this business on either side of the camera. So it'll be interesting to see, how it evolves in the next year or so. With everything contracting, tell me, how do you promote yourself? How do you make sure that you are top of mind for your agent, top of mind in the discussions that are out there? How do you get the word out? I think it's the key is to, as long as you have something to promote. I think sometimes a lot of people are just filling the air without things. Like I'd rather it, you know, be able to promote this podcast or things that are a bit more linked to some substance. Because I think sometimes people are just posting for nothing like i post to promote like my acting projects also like i'm also a huge fundraiser for terry fox like it's near and dear to my heart and it's a very easy way to be able to promote these charities and raise money and stuff so um i think that's the big key is like promote with substance and but i also have friends now who are totally pulling back and realizing unless you're like a mega twitter star 
you will never be monetized or it's not like anyone's going to say, Hey, can you, we'll pay you a hundred thousand dollars to promote this book. Like it's sort of like, but I think we're all in this mode of like, we need to be seen and heard constantly. And I think it's realizing maybe not like some of the people I respect the most, like Tina Fey, she's not on Twitter. She's like, I get paid to write. Why do I want to write for free? <laughs> <laughs> right. But except that you're not Tina Fey though. No, I'd like to. She's very lovely. <laughs> <laughs> I think your point about posting with, with, with purpose uh, makes a lot of sense. Someone may not call you uh, and, and say, I want you to tweet for a hundred thousand dollars, but you've, actually raised a lot of money for Terry Fox and a lot of awareness for the Terry Fox run over the years. You've been doing this forever. So you've used what platform that you do have and what contacts and notoriety you do have to raise awareness. So you've, you've pulled, you've certainly pulled off stuff with that. It's true. Thank you for saying, I think it's always easier when it's selfless and not about you as narcissistic as it can be about, I think as anyone in any business, I think promoting yourself, it's a very weird uh, battle of the heads of like how much, how much is just delusional self-promotion and how much is grounded in like substance of like, okay, this is something worth reading or following. And my big thing, cause I have been on TikTok, I'm not posting anything, but just observing how, you know, someone on TikTok might have like a million followers and then you click on their Instagram and it's like 30,000. And it's interesting to learn just cause you're popular on a medium, it does not equate success to other mediums, which is what I've really found interesting as of late. So it's whatever. And again, Facebook has been way better and more beneficial to me and Instagram versus like Twitter. Like Twitter is more, I think, where I follow my politics, but I'll do the random promotion, but fans of what I do are not on Twitter. You have to find your audience. So you have to, whether or not that's on a, on social media or on the screen, yep. on the page, doesn't really matter. They're somewhere, hopefully. Yeah, the people that will like what you're doing and will respond. And like you're saying, it doesn't necessarily translate from one platform to the next. You just made me realize because where I've helped people with websites and stuff and they're like, should I be on Twitter? And I'm like, if you have no interest and you're not doing it now, then don't. Just because other people are doing it, you need to realize like, I enjoy posting pictures on Instagram and I automatically send them to Facebook. Like I'm not doing separate uploads, but if it's not in your inherent nature or style, then don't do it because there's nothing worse when you click on a Twitter account. The last post was from like four years ago. <laughs> like it just makes me realize, okay, why do you have this? Like have enough sense to delete it. Like just not have that. Save your name. Like, you know, if you have a special day, like hold on to it, but don't post anything. Just know that it's there. Or at least use your Twitter to say, visit my website or some kind of, because if that's not your medium and it's not part of your sort of daily exercise and don't do it. You just look dumb. <laughs> there, there's your quote for the show, Daryl. Don't do it. You'll just look dumb. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be on a poster for sure. So, what does a typical day look like for you? Because I know that you, in addition to your acting, in addition to the writing and the directing that you're doing, you're obviously experiencing a slowdown, as many of us are with COVID. What's filling the day? Um, well, I'm fortunate enough to have gotten some work from Centennial. Uh, myself and the classmate were doing all the film short film submissions for a couple of their films. So that's been a nice uh, job to have the last month or so. Just, it's just nice to have a bit of structure and to be working towards that. But again, it's sort of been writing, doing a lot of reading. Um, I love, just got a new Kobo, which, uh, which I recommend anyone in Canada, you need to just get a Kobo because you can get the overdrive app, which is all the books from the library for free. Oh, 
That's cool. Why? Because Kindle does not work with that. So why would you, every book you basically read, you have to pay for it. I'm like, that makes no sense to me. <laughs> and there are hundreds of books, thousands of books for free. So been reading a lot. And then bicycling. Um, one of the things I did get uh, with my serve money is to motivate myself to get out of the house, I got an Apple watch. So hmm. tracking my walking and biking, I've got my out of the house almost daily, which is nice. Uh, and the cool thing is I have four or five friends also have an Apple Watch that can track each other and see if they've got their steps or activity for the day. So it's been a nice sort of motivator because I think it's been so, it's so easy just to sort of become a shut-in. And I see some people post like, I haven't been to a store in months. And I'm like, that <laughs> bothers me. I'm, I'm bothered for you because again, I think it's like the sensory <laughs> processing, like you need to go out. Like the weather's nice. You can, and I mean, I think that's what I love with biking too. Like, you're really not near anyone. Like if someone's near you, they're probably going to try to rob you. Um, <laughs> like they're too close, <laughs> get away. But yeah, I think it's just the active, because uh, I definitely like to go four long bike rides, but there's, I've been really trying to regiment myself. Short daily movement is probably better than one long bike ride a week. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like, it's the, it's the act of doing daily to sort of try to keep your, your sanity just moving and have some goals. Well, I've noticed that in addition to, getting out and getting active, whether it's on a bike or going for a walk or, or, or any of these things with everything you do, you take the opportunity to do something creative because I know you're also snapping really great shots all over Toronto as well. Cause you've got, uh, an Instagram account that's, that's, uh, I heart Toronto. Yes. But so I, cause I had the blog, I heart Toronto.net cause I forgot to renew.com once <laughs> things that will bug me forever. Um, but yeah, it's also sort of, again, streamlining, like, because I stopped posting to those blogs. Like, I, my hashtag's always iHeartToronto because I truly love Toronto and Toronto's been so good to me. But I've always been a photographer. Like, even back, back on film, we, you might have to put a disclaimer in a Wikipedia <laughs> link to your younger <laughs> listeners of what film is. But I've always been sort of the documenting. Like, I love pictures and just sort of as snapshots in time, like, cause I don't journal, I don't think like that, but I love being able to look at a picture to remind you of those things. And the photos so easily take you back to those memories. And I continue it now digitally, but it's fun to be able to post them on Instagram. And well, it makes me laugh because your character in Masculathon, which is the, the comedy web series that, that we did together <laughs> and your character was a, uh, was a film photographer. Yes. Like you were drawing on your own self for that, that piece. Yeah, that's part of it because I just love the pictures and I, I collect old film cameras because it's just funny how many mediums have happened and now we're in the world of digital where no one prints anything. Yeah, it, basically social media posting is the new printing. My big thing, uh, we actually now like sort of annually will make a photo album book for my family that we give each other because it's just nice to be able to sit down sometimes and flip and not be on your phone or device. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot more sociable, I find too. You know, sitting on the couch together, it's not the same thing here, come, come you know, huddled around my tiny little handheld screen. It's, 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 it's just not quite the same warm and fuzzy feeling when you see these old pictures and stuff. What advice would you give to somebody then who's trying to get into acting and writing film production video? Granted today's day and age, it's extra tough with COVID, but what would you say to somebody who's just starting out? I think just be open to trying things. And I, and my big takeaway, I've took lots of different classes, but also realizing it's almost like a buffet. You pick and choose what you like and works for you. Because some people, you sit in a class and they tell you these theories and techniques to memorize and do scenes. 
and they sound great, but they are useless in application to me. Like it's, I, my big realization is I'm an intuitive performer, like, and definitely makes sense with my improv background. Cause the more logical I get and try to study proper, I just get further and further away from the goal of trying to do well. And when I went, when I was in LA um, for pilot season, I think that's like eight years ago, a big thing in LA is everyone auditions with their script in their hand. And that's a big no-no in Canada. But it worked better for me. So I started doing it and I started booking more. And it's not like anyone ever said to me, like, you can't have that script in your hand because it's a lot easier for me if I've forgotten a line to glance down, look at it and go, keep going versus, oh, oh sorry. Okay, can we, can we do that again? Like, because again, it, it's, it's like what works best for you. Like your job is to do your best job and it's whatever works for you in that moment. So I think that was that thing because a lot of people speak as an authority, like this is how everything's done in this way. And it's like, it's still a creative medium and it's what works best for you. And I realized the more logical I get, it does not work for me. I, it's, I'm better like lightly rehearsed versus trying to memorize everything. Like it's better for me because an audition is not a memory exercise. As long as they know that you're getting most of the lines that you probably only got the night before, but you're emoting. Cause again, practicing that, that you can do later, but it's showing, do you have that range to get the part? Cause there's lots of people audition well and they're horrible when they get on set. <laughs> I was speaking with somebody who is a young performer and they're, they're up and coming. They're, they're doing their best. They're, they're trying, they're trying to get opportunities. And during the day, they have a job. They're, they wait tables. And this person is endlessly depressed about it and embarrassed about it. Hates going to a party and having to answer, yeah, I'm an actor. No, you haven't seen me in anything and, uh, you know, that, you would, that you would have heard of. And, uh, you know, really what I am is a professional server. What do you say to somebody who's concerned with something like that? The one nugget I wish that I got sooner in life, but it's, it's a great nugget, is that these other jobs you're doing, like serving, you're underwriting your career. Being a waiter is not your career. You're just using that to help you follow your career and your dream. And underwriting that, no matter what you're doing it, being it serving, I now do decluttering on the side. Like It's just what gets you to the goal. And I think it's trying to get out of that ego and being concerned of what other people think. And like, I have lots of credits and I tell most people the credits they've never heard of them. At least now I have Schitt's Creek and I, they know that one. I might have 25 credits. There's probably two. They know the name Rick Mercer and Schitt's Creek. That's the two that, <laughs> <laughs> that they know, but it doesn't, it's not a reflection of, you know, there's so much content now to consume, like, unless it's like one of the top shows. So, it's so easy as an actor to personalize it and like internalize that sort of shame. Like, oh, you haven't heard of this rare, weird film about spiders based in Toronto? <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> I was the lead. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, it's, and it's fun. And I can always tell when something got on Netflix because instantly that week, I will get dozens of messages from people. <laughs> I saw you in Covert Affairs. I'm like, I filmed that like nine years ago, but now it's on Netflix. <laughs> Yeah, years ago when I was producing and uh, I would meet people at a party and I got, I just got sick of it. I wasn't actually embarrassed. I was proud of my work, but I got really sick of the question of 
you know, what do you do? I'm a producer. Uh, oh, have you made anything that I would have heard of? And eventually I just started saying friends. <laughs> that was it. And I'd walk away. I'd, Can I get to drink for you? Anybody need a drink? And I'd walk away. And then the rest of the party, people would be talking about the producer of friends is here. Of course, I'm not in the credits. I didn't do anything to do with friends, but it certainly ended those conversations fast. What a way to get out of that. Or it's the, have I seen you in this? And you answer, no. Have I, or it's the, you look familiar. I'm in and porn. Then, Just yeah. say that. Yeah. I think that, well, <laughs> hey, depending on how things go, that could be the next interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, that leads me to my next question, which is where can people find out more about you? <laughs> Only fan. No. Um, <laughs> uh, Darylden.com is my acting writing directing website and i'm actually in the process of relaunching darylden.ca which is sort of my other jobs for my decluttering and web design work and stuff so uh, i'll have to just google darylden you'll find me <laughs> you're all over the place I have, all, I have all the names there are no other darylden so at least thankfully i have all my names for most platforms well thanks so much for being on the show and sharing with us how you make a living thanks so much Robbie. Subscribe to Making a Living Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more on the show, visit makingalivingshow.com and follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Making a Living Show is produced by Next Exit Media and hosted by me, Roby Levy. Thanks for listening.